Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. I picked a great day to come uh, because we're getting ready to embark on a new series uh, entitled Hero to Heathen. Now, the way that we're going to frame this is a hero is simply someone that acknowledges God, while the real definition of a heathen, the real definition is one that chooses not to acknowledge God. And, uh, and really the theme verse is going to be Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In other words, if we don't acknowledge God, uh, there will probably be some crooked paths. And so today I, I want to speak to you from the subject of wrong way run. Say that ten times fast. Come on, tell your neighbor, wrong way run. Wrong way run. Let me pray for us. Father, in Jesus' name, as we dive into your word, I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts. Lord, we need your presence. We need your power. Um, just don't want it to be uh, just speech today, but, Lord, a demonstration of your spirit's power that we would leave changed. Lord, I, some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be convicted. Some of us need to um, just, you just meet us so faithfully right where we're at. And so just ask in Jesus' name that you would do this for your name's sake and for your glory and your precious name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, I, I want to bring you back to 1964. Uh, in the spirit of football season, you know, we know it's football season in church because the attendance starts to go like this. But we're changing that here at Fountain Church. We're shifting the gears there. Um, but 1964, 49ers versus Vikings. Fourth quarter, Niners fumble the ball. And a man by the name of Jim Marshall, safety for the Vikings, picks it up. And look what happens. There's no play ever. You can't even find a play more humiliating than that play. Stops, throws, completes it to Kilmer up at the 30-yard line. Kilmer driving for the first down, loses the football. Seeing the ball loose, seeing the goalpost kind of triggered, you know, pick it up and run. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. And he's running it into the end zone the wrong way. Thinks he scored a touchdown. He scored a safety. One of the 49er players came up and, and said, thanks, Jim. Uh, you knew right away. It really messed up this time. Oh. The 49er player came up and said, hey, thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Fourth quarter. Now, now you could imagine, though, in, in, in this moment, Jim is struggling. I, I mean, the, the, the ball is fumbled, and there, he's getting pressed on every side. There's adrenaline going through his body. There, there's this anxiety. I got to get my hands on it. Then I got to get up and run. So you can understand the pressure that someone on the field like that is facing. And, and it's, it's challenging. And you think that for this particular moment, the ball was in his hand. And it was in this moment that he had the opportunity to make a difference. In the fourth quarter. It's like the, the final hour. He had an opportunity to make a difference. He had an opportunity to change the trajectory of the game. But he ends up scoring for the other team. I mean, you could imagine trying to recover from that. But he does. Big shout out to Jim because he gets back on the field and everybody kind of applauds. But he's got that stigma of, oh, man, I ran into the wrong end zone. 60 yards he ran. That is a long, wrong way run. But in all fairness to Jim, I think the truth of the matter is there's been so many times that God has given me the play. 
God has given me the game plan, and God has put something in my hand to run with, whether it be influence, whether it be the opportunity to lead, whether it be finances, relationships, the good news of Jesus. He entrusts us. He puts the gospel of Jesus in our hands and says, man, here's how you run the play to the world. I can't tell you how many times, uh, probably more than, than uh, I, I'm, I'm, ashamed, I'm, ashamed, I'm ashamed to admit, how many times God has placed something in my hand. He's given me the game plan. He's given me the play, and I've ran in the wrong direction. And, and you start to feel the gravity of that, a moment where I have an opportunity to make a difference. I have an opportunity to change the game, and I end up running in the opposite direction. See, one of the things that I love about Jim is that he only made this play one time. He never did it again in his career. And I think for you and I, it's important to realize that, hey, listen, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to continue to make mistakes. But I think it's really important that those wrong plays don't become the pattern of our life. You see, because God has given us a game plan for every aspect of life. God has given us the play. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He describes how every aspect of our life is best lived. God says, you want to know how sex is best, best played out? I got the play. You want to know how marriage is best played out? I got the play. Singleness, I got the play. Finances, I got the play. Joy, happiness, fulfillment, that emptiness that you may feel, I got the play. Success, I got the play. I got the game plan. And God is so gracious to us because he's given us his word. He's given us these plays so that you and I have the opportunity to learn from wisdom and not consequence. Come on, all of us have, have had the reality of learning from consequence, have we? Like Jim, let me show you a picture. We all know how this feels. To be in the end zone of regret. Where we ran the wrong play and we find ourselves, oh man, I can't We've all been there before. And God gives us this game plan. God gives us the play so that we can learn from wisdom and so that you and I don't have to learn from consequence. Now, as, as we dive into this series, I think it's really important that we understand that when God puts something in our hand, you see, the glory that day wasn't just for Jim. The glory that was on the line was also for his team. And it's important that we understand that when God places something in our hand, it's not just for our good. When God gives us the game plan, it's not just for our good. When God gives us the play to run, it's not just for our good, but it's also for his glory. That the world would look at our life and be like, wow, what an incredible play. In the midst of all that tension, in the midst of all that pressure, in the midst of that critical moment, and you ran the right play. And so, so as we dive in, we're going to actually be in the Old Testament uh, for this series. We're going to be looking at the life of a man by the name of King Saul. Now, King Saul was really pivotal in Israel's history. Matter of fact, King Saul marked the turn of a brand new age for the people of God. It, it, it was a time where God used to be the king of the people, but the people of Israel rebelled against God and started to look 
outside of God to the other pagan nations. And they said, hey, those guys have earthly kings. We want one of those too. God says, man, that's really not a good idea. And God begins to unpack the reasons why it wasn't going to be a good idea. And they still said, yeah, we want one of those. So God said, okay. And so God appoints this man by the name of Saul. He speaks to the prophet Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to anoint this man Saul king over Israel. Now, as we look at King Saul's life in the Old Testament, it's important to understand why, uh, how the Old Testament applies to us today. And in fact, the Old Testament, uh, we see clearly from Scripture that it was written for you and I today, even though we are under a new covenant in Christ, it is written for our instruction. It is written so you and I can go back and learn from some of these men and women, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's, it's so that you and I can learn from wisdom and not have to learn from consequence. And so King Saul, he starts off really great. He starts off a hero. Now remember where we're looking at a hero is, is one who acknowledges God. One who says, God, I know who you are and I know who I am. And a heathen, the definition is one who does not acknowledge God. And Saul starts off great. It's really incredible. God anoints him as king over Israel. He has some incredible encounters with God. God's spirit comes upon Saul. He experienced God in such a profound and powerful way that it begins to change Saul's heart. It begins to completely change Saul's life. But even though Saul had some great encounters with God, even though he was anointed by God, he was called by God, he was still a man. And he was still a man, just like you and I, that are subject to temptation. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Things like pride, jealousy, insecurity, lack of faith. And we could keep jotting this list down because there's so many things that we can talk about. But these are some of the, the areas of temptation that Saul had to battle with. And Saul started off great. He seemed so humble. When Samuel approached him, he said, listen, Samuel, I don't think I'm the right guy for the job. I mean, I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, my clan is the least in the tribe of Benjamin. Seems super humble. Started off with the right heart, right motivation. But it, was, it, was, it, it wasn't soon into this process that Saul began to move from one that acknowledged God to one who didn't. And it happened pretty quick. Got off to a great start. But just like you and I, he's subject to temptation. And it's in these moments that we're going to choose to acknowledge God or we're going to choose to run our own play. We're going to choose to run his plan or we're going to choose to run our play. And it started off great and it was, everything was going amazing. But then the downfall started with a particular battle. Let me show you a picture of this. Saul's son, Jonathan, a uh, great leader, was in Geba and had led an army to overthrow one of the garrisons of the Philistines. Now, a garrison simply means uh, a, a stationary place. It's where troops hung out. Um, it, it, was, it was like a headquarters. And Jonathan and his troops went and they overthrew the garrison and everybody was pumped up. Like they're sending out messages throughout the land like, we, this is amazing, we, we, we did it, we got them. 
Well, while, while Jonathan is in Geba, Saul is, is now up in Gilgal, and the Philistines are upset. And they start mounting their chariots. They start gathering troops together. They're ready to retaliate with major vengeance. And so they gather here at Michmash, and they're ready to, they're ready to go. And so all of a sudden, word starts to get out that the Philistines are coming back with vengeance. And the people of God, the people of Israel start to get afraid. And that's where we see Saul start to transition from a hero, one that acknowledges God, to a heathen of one that doesn't. And it starts in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 6. And he goes on to say this. It says, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, what did they do? They hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. I think it's pretty typical when we see a critical situation and we perceive there to be a threat in our life, the first instinct is, how do I hide? How do I get out of this? What can I do? And so they start to get real fearful based on what they saw. They're hard-pressed. It's getting thick. It's getting real. We just came off a great victory, but I don't know. And it goes on to say that Saul, Saul, he remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Now, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel instructs Saul Gives him some very clear gives some very clear instructions that this is the word of the Lord to you, Saul. That when you arrive in Gilgal, you're to wait seven days. And Samuel said, "I'm going to show up. I'm going to prepare the sacrifice. I'm going to prepare the peace offering. And this is very important." Then he tells Saul, "And I will give you instructions on what to do next." But Saul is in this fight. He's in this pickle. The situation is getting critical. Hostility is rising, and he's in between these two words, fear and waiting. I think for all of us, I think we could agree that this is a challenging place to be when you're waiting in fear. You start to get restless. <sighs> Samuel, where you at, man? Come on. I mean, you, you can imagine how he's feeling that the Philistines are on the move and they're waiting. The Philistines are gathering their troops and Saul's troops are scattering. And I think we can all identify with moments where Saul goes from victor to vulnerable. And it seems to be throughout the narrative of Scripture, we see this constantly. We see these victories and then these battles. We see these blessings and then we see these battles. I mean, you go back to uh, when God delivered the Israelites out of the hand of Pharaoh. They escaped from Pharaoh, but then guess what? Great victory, then there's a Red Sea. You see the people of God cross the Jordan River miraculously, but then guess what they faced? Jericho. I mean, you even fast forward to the New Testament, you see Jesus heal a man's ear after Peter got gangster and cut it off, trying to protect the tribe. Jesus heals his ear, the next Jesus is on the cross. Did you see this pattern of blessing and battle, victor and vulnerability, victories and 
tough situations. And so, so Saul is, is in this fight. He's wrestling between the vulner, being vulnerable and just came off of this great victory. He's trying to figure out, what do I do? He's waiting. Everybody's afraid. His guys are leaving. And it's in these moments that all, this, all of a sudden God's plan starts to seem like a problem. You ever experienced that? Where God's plan or God's promise, it starts to seem like a problem. I mean, God, if this is your plan, why are all my guys leaving? Why is my entire troop, all my troops are quaking with fear? And you start to question God's plan when you're pressed. You start to question God's plan when it's critical. You start to question God's plan when the conditions aren't how you thought they would be. And what's really interesting with the Lord is when it, can't, when it comes to his plan or his promise, God never promised perfect conditions. But he did promise perfect outcomes. Like when it comes to God's plan, he never said that you're going to have perfect conditions on the journey. But he did say the outcome will be, definitely be worth it. But sometimes we get a little bit confused in this tension and it causes us to want to step in and help God out a little bit. Because everything is shaking. So Jack and I don't get to get to the movies very often because we got three kids. Who wants to watch three kids? Uh, nobody. Um, but we got to the movies the other night and we watched The First Man. The, it's called The First Man. It's, it's the story of um, the first man on the moon, on Lee, uh, Neil Armstrong. And it was just a great, inspiring movie. Thanks to Talk Back. That's awesome. You guys can talk back in this church. It's all good. Um, feel free to say amen. Shout me down. Whatever you feel like doing, it's awesome. If you hear something that resonates, say amen. That's so good. Um, but we were watching this movie, and it's, it's pretty incredible the fact that they got to the moon in the 60s. I was looking at their technology. I would be afraid now. And these guys had the courage to go in the 60s. Technology just didn't look very secure. They're still like flipping switches and looked a little crazy. In fact, on the, in, in progression of getting to the moon, man, people suffered greatly. Families suffered. Many people died. There were a lot of casualties. But this particular moment, Neil Armstrong has been through the ringer. His daughter died of a brain tumor. His family's just, you know, suffer the pressures of being in this program. And when you're going to the moon, how many of you guys know it requires a lot of time and planning? And, and he, he gets into the Apollo 11, and there's this moment in the movie. And the cool thing is I can tell you the story because you already know the outcome. He gets to the moon. Um, <laughs> and so he gets into the capsule, and they buckle him in. And you could, like, just see it in his eyes as the, the, the engine starts to fire up, as the jet fuel begins to, to pump through the bottom of the rocket. And the whole thing is just shaking. And off to the left is a little window. And he can see the moon. And the way the movie kind of depicts it is the whole thing is shaking. They're getting ready to take off. Everything is running. He's just focused on the moon. Like, I'm coming for you. I'm not getting my eyes off of the moon. And I actually got a, a picture online of what his eyes looked like as he was gazing into that. It was just his focus was so fixed. And, and I think it's, it's, it's really hard in these moments where we're pressed on every side to fix our focus on God's plan when it seems like it's a problem. And it requires a fixing and the shaking that are just everything is rattling, but I'm just, I'm going to the moon. 
And it's in that moment that we're faced with probably one of the greatest decisions, just like Saul was, a decision that would change the game for the rest of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, don't, don't despise the decisions and the choices that you make because they could change everything. The ball is now in Saul's hands. What are you going to do? It's into the seventh day. Everybody's afraid. You're waiting. Everything is shaking. It's really critical. What are you going to do? The ball is in your court. And in that shaking, Saul says, I can't. I just can't. And look what he does. It says, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. He said, I just can't do it. I just, bring it to me. And I thought, man. It's amazing that in the shaking, we're so tempted to look outside of God's plan for another plan, don't we? And he knew very clear the instructions that God had given him through the prophet Samuel. And he also knew that God had given his people clear instructions of the role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And that kings were never to perform priestly duties. But you want to know what was crazy? Is all the other pagan kings could. And so you could imagine Saul in that moment, like, got to do something. God's plan has become a problem. It's not working. I got to do something. All the other kings get to sacrifice to their gods. And so he takes the situation into his hand, and he does it himself. And the Bible says immediately when he was finished, Samuel showed up. What's up? Oh, no. No. Saul's like, I ran the wrong way. He said, but I, I didn't think you were coming. I ran the wrong way. I ran the wrong play. I knew better. I... And Samuel's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't do that, Saul. Come on, man. And so we see Saul start to digress from this point forward, of one that acknowledges God to one that doesn't, from a hero to a heathen. And I'm hoping that through his life, God may identify some areas in our life of some lies that we believed that we might not even know we've believed. And that we would know what to do in moments like this, that God would give us wisdom, that God's spirit would search our hearts in this time. So that you and I aren't on this downward trajectory going from starting really well to not finishing very well. And the first thing that we see in this text was Saul that he did. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. The first thing that he believed was, or the first thing that happened was Saul was driven by fear rather than patient in faith. And again, it's very hard to be patient when you're afraid. Because you want to respond. Now, fear is, is an interesting thing. As a matter of fact, fear, when it comes upon us, it, it triggers a chemical reaction in our body. When we start to feel fear, our body responds in a way where it starts to release chemicals into the brain and into the body that start to mess with us on the inside. L let me show you what I mean. In the brain, there's this portion called the amygdala. And the amygdala is really what triggers the fight or flight response when you're in a hostile situation. In other words, the amygdala, it, it, it triggers the threat. 
it perceives a threat and says, warning, warning, something's wrong. And so at that moment, it, it releases chemicals like cortisol into your brain. You feel this adrenal, adrenaline rush. And it's almost like this euphoric place because you're in a fight mode. But then what happens if you live in that place for long periods of time, that cortisol begins to deplete your dopamine and your serotonin, which brings tranquility, and you find yourself in anxiety and depression. And so, so this, this amygdala is triggered. There's a, th a threat. Something's wrong. But then it transitions up to the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the one that perceives the threat, puts it into context to tell whether or not it's a real threat or not. So, for example, let me show you a picture. This guy running from a lion. This is where your amygdala says, run. You're going to die. And your hippocampus says, it's right. Run. Go. Context. Context. But then the very same animal, you can find yourself, let me show you this one, at the zoo, about to put his mouth over your kid's head, and you're so at ease. Because what happens is the amygdala says threat, and the hippocampus is looking at the perceived threat, identifies the tempered glass, puts it into context, and says, you're okay. You're all right. So you could have a lion's mouth opened, trying to take off your head, and you're laughing. You're eating some peanuts. <laughs> you're tapping on the glass trying to annoy the animal so he does something weird or crazy. Because it puts it into context. And what's so interesting is that I think a big portion of how your hippocampus processes, now I'm not a doctor by any means, but, but it seems that there's a level of maturity that has nothing to do with age, but just rather to put things in their proper context. For example, uh, my daughter, every Halloween, like we're here, we always go on a walk in our neighborhood and there's this one street that she hates going down. This is my middle child, Abby. Because just like people decorate their street for Christmas, this neighborhood decorates their house for Halloween. And there's like big monsters everywhere. So my oldest daughter, she can put that into context. And she can ride her scooter past like, oh, it's nothing. They're not real. And then my middle child, Abby, she's like. And I say, don't look. She's like this. I say, you all right, look. Maybe she'll look away, but it, it never works. She just gets her eyes fixed like, Daddy, don't take me down the street anymore. Because she's not able to put things into proper context. And, and I started to think Paul's words to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verses 2. He says, but do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you need to renew the pattern of your thinking. Then you will be able to do what? You'll be able to test. You'll be able to put into context and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and his perfect will. It's almost like Paul is saying, listen, allow the Holy Spirit through the word of God to so renew and replenish the patterns of your mind that when your amygdala perceives a threat and your hippocampus goes to get context, that there's a reservoir for it to grab from that says, listen, this person just gossiped about you. <gasps> it's over. And then it goes to the hippocampus. Person just gossips. And then all of a sudden, context. 
Every word that rises against you, every mouth will be condemned. No perceived threat. Right? You find yourself in a moment where it's critical. You're wondering, is this going to work? Troops are leaving. Everything is a disaster. Your enemies coming against you. You're pressed on all sides. And your amygdala says, threat. And your hippocampus says, okay, let me look at this. Let me look at this. Context, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Context, you've not received the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. And all of a sudden, our faith becomes like this tempered wall. That now we're able to look at the same ferocious situation with a smile. We're able to lay down and rest. We're able to go about our purpose. We can wait patiently for the Lord to fulfill what he promised to fulfill. Our faith operates as this tempered glass that reels in our emotions and our decisions in these critical moments. Through the process of God renewing our mind through his word reels us in to put things into context that God is in control and his plan will always work. His purpose will always prevail. Could, could you imagine, could you imagine though, when you're in those moments and you got nothing to draw from? Perceived threat. It's disastrous, hippocampus. I don't even know. I'm not even sure. If you want to run, run. You want to try to stay, stay. I don't know. What does your mom say? Right? Call a friend. You got a lifeline or something. I'm not sure. But like, God forbid that we find ourselves in those moments. I think sometimes the Holy Spirit just throws us one in those. Like, hey, you didn't even read this, but I'm just going to give it to you anyways. Because God so longs for us to experience his best life. You see that all over, right? Living my best life now. That's all God is for that. Because when you're living your best life and you're running the right plays, it's going to be for your good and he gets glory. He gets glory. The second thing that was wrong with Paul's thinking or Saul's thinking was that Saul believed his sacrifice over God's command would secure the victory. And I think this is really appropriate. You, you could imagine he's trying to do the right thing but in the wrong way. He's caught up with more of a ritual than the heart behind it. A routine apart from the heart and the command of why that was originally instituted. And you could imagine in this moment he's, he looks at Samuel and he's like, man, bro, you didn't show up. And he was like, you just didn't wait long enough, dude. Man, I, I forced myself to do it. I, I made the sacrifice. I mean, my guys were leaving. I saw that it was critical. He saw that it was critical, it says. He started to look and started to get filled with fear. And he says, so I made the call and I, I sacrificed. I shouldn't have done it. And look what Samuel, his response to, to Saul is. He says, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Probably the worst three words in the Bible. If you had. Oh. If you had. Check this out. He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. 
you're building something solid that's not sustainable. You're building your life on something that can't go the distance. You're putting your faith in a sacrifice or a process or a routine without the heart of God behind it and the instruction of God. You're not running the play. It looks like you ran the play, but you missed it. You're doing the wrong thing, the right thing in the wrong way. And, and the consequences of that are just, they're huge. But look at God's, God's heart. God says, man, I long to establish you. I want you to have firm footing. I want, I, I want you to, to be on, on solid ground. I want you to have a life that can go the distance, a joy that can go the distance, a peace that can go the distance, an influence that can go the distance. But he's like, oh, if you would have just waited. Like, like, come on, guys, listen, for some of us, just wait a little bit longer. You're ready to throw in the towel. Just hold on. Just a little bit longer. Samuel's like, Saul's like, oh. You know, what's interesting. Jack and I were talking about a passage last night found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is what it says. It says that if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and that fire will test the quality of each person's work. It's kind of like the, the, the big bad wolf and the three little pigs, right? You can't build something out of hay and straw. It, it can't go the distance. But we were talking about what uh, commentator and theologian Warren Wearsby said. He said, you want to know what's the difference between gold, silver, and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw? He said, wood, hay, and straw is everywhere. But gold, silver, and precious stones, you got to dig into the heart of the earth to find those. There's a depth. There's a greater dimension. You can build with all this fluff stuff. But if you want a life that's able to go the distance, that's able to withstand the fire, the critical, the hard press, you can't build it with hay and stone or hay and wood. It's like you're going to have to go deep. You're going to have to, you're going to have to hold on the shaking. Because it's in that pressing, it's in that refiner's fire that God begins to produce something so beautiful. I, I, I love this reality of, of Saul. It, it's really heartbreaking, but it wasn't that Saul had a lack of knowledge of God. He, he knew. But I love how the Old Testament survey puts it. Look at a quote in there. It says that Saul's lack of spiritual sensibility was not a lack of knowledge about God, but the wrong focus and lack of attentiveness to the things that God cares about. It was like, man, like, you know, you knew the sacrifice needed to be had, but your eyes just aren't fixed on what, what really matters to God. The play that God actually called. You're still running your own play, Saul. You're still trying to take it into your own hands. And, and I, I couldn't help but to think about the church found in Ephesus, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus. And it was, it was, it was so encouraging because the Lord speaking to them says, man, you guys are killing it. Your doctrine and your theology, on point. You're resisting those who are coming against the faith. 
Those who are opposing me, you are standing strong against. You're giving great reasons and great arguments. But he says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You don't love me like you used to. You're calling all the right shots. Your theology's on point. But you're running the wrong play. You missed the whole heart of it. I love what John Piper said. He said it like this. He said, it's not... It's a scary reality that the road to hell is not only paved with good intentions, but good deeds and theological precision as well. You know, Saul, he, he meant well. I'm trying to get it done. I'm trying to make something happen. That wasn't the instruction. That wasn't the play. I'm so guilty of this. You know how many times I run my own play because I feel pressed. I want to hide. It's critical. And I feel like God's plan is a problem. And so I want to figure it out. I want to fix it. God's like, that's not the play, man. You're going to mess it up more. And I think how often, you know, we come to the Lord's table with communion. The first Sunday of the month, we partake together and and Jesus did something that he commanded us to do. But how easy it is to kind of just go through the routine and miss the heart of it. He said, man, I want you to go back and every time you do it, I want you to remember me. It's like a renewing of the vows. Going back and remembering the cross, the reality of the resurrection. Remembering what he did in the past. Examining our heart in the present. And looking towards the reality that he's coming again. That he is alive. He's on the throne. And he's coming back. It's, it's so much different just to go and just eat a cracker, drink some juice. Cool, I feel good for the month. Woohoo! It's a sacrifice. But it's not the right play. But to go back and to say, man, I'm going to take this moment. In fact, it says that you shouldn't take it in an in a inappropriate way. Why? Because there's so much death. Like, don't miss the goodness and the vastness and the richness that God has for you because you don't want to run the play. Like, like God's plan for you, he's, he's, he's basically saying this, I want you to have an abundant life. That's why I've given you these plays. Not because these commands are going to be a burden. If you really take a look, they're for your joy and delight. I want you to run the play, not because I'm some tyrant God, but because I love you so much and it's the best play. It's how it works. It's how I designed it. It's how you're made. And how easy it is to show up. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty today by any means because the reality is we all struggle with this. But I think, man, how easy it is to come to church and, and think that that's going to win favor with God. Like that, that's what Saul was all about. He's like, man, I'm going to make this sacrifice. Maybe I'll get some favor. That's not the play, bro. It's not just about coming to sit in a seat. God's saying, will you take my word? Will you take the play that I'm giving you? Will you invite me in? Will you let me change your life? Will you let me renew your mind? I'm telling you it's for your joy and it's for my glory. But how often we just settle back. We can't wait. So we take it into our own hands and we run our own play. And then we find ourselves in the end zone of regret like,
God wants to encourage somebody today. You know what's so beautiful about the church in Ephesus? The Lord didn't say, you're done. Sorry, lost your first love. Get out of here. No, he says, listen, remember, repent, and return. Get things back in order. The first demise from Saul from going to a hero to a heathen. Listen, if you're taking notes, last point is this. He simply misplaced his faith. He put his faith in the circumstance, in himself, and in the sacrifice. Opposed to the God of all creation. And so my question to you today is this. Where have you misplaced your faith? Where do you need to remember so you can repent and return and let God refresh you again, breathe life into you again. He just doesn't want you going through the motions. He wants you to experience life. So hear me when I say this. If you're wrestling with fear today and you're in a fight, I just want to point you back to the cross. I want you to get this picture. The beauty of the cross, it, it, it's so incredible because what looked like God's, God's greatest plan looked like the greatest problem. The disciples are looking like, how is this God's plan? But it turned out to be the greatest victory. And so wherever you're at right now, and you feel like fear is pressing on every side, and God's plan appears to be a problem, remember the cross. God always comes through. Never promised perfect conditions, but he did promise a perfect outcome. Secondly is this. If you've just been going through the motions, maybe you show up to church, maybe open your Bible once in a while, but it's just empty inside. I want to point you to the empty tomb you to look back again to the reality that we have a Savior that's alive, who's not just content with you going through some religious routines. He wants to be in intimate relationship with you, the God of all creation. Neil Armstrong, shout out to you. You got to go to the moon. We get an opportunity to have the Spirit of God live on the inside of us, the one who created the moon, the sun, the stars. And it's awesome. We don't have to go through all these hoops to get it. He already did so that we can freely come by way of the cross his death and resurrection. That's the greatest news on the planet, ladies and gentlemen. And it's the news that we can never get away from or we'll start once again to misplace our faith. And we'll go from hero, one that acknowledges God, to heathen, one that doesn't.